the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm Seth Leibson, in today on the Town Hall Review, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The Iowa Caucus, the first contest in the 2024 cycle, is now behind us. I think after last night's decisive victory, the writing is on the wall here. We'll look at the predictable, but still wildly irresponsible treatment of Trump from our elite media outlets. The MSNBC hosts completely imploded. We'll hear from pollster Scott Rasmussen. The race is over. The reality is... Trump was perceived as an incumbent. You know, this this wasn't an open race, and that just enabled him to steamroll over everybody. Plus, we'll take a closer look at our retaliatory strike on the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Guess what? The White House called up the Houthis and said, we're going to bomb you, and this is where we're going to bomb you, before the attack happened. And something you should be watching closely. And now you add on the story of two Navy SEALs who have fallen into the drink We do not look good to the rest of the region. We look very incompetent. We've got all this and more. I'm Seth Leibson, coming to you from Phoenix and AM 960 The Patriot, where I host a program in the afternoon, Monday through Friday. Learn more and listen to my program at 960thepatriot.com and take a moment to follow me on Twitter at Seth Leibson, L-E-I-B-S-O-H-N. And follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. The first contest in the 2024 presidential election cycle is now behind us. Iowa's caucus was held on Monday night. We shouldn't say the results were a complete surprise, but it's newsworthy nonetheless. Trump won, and he did so decisively. We'll turn first to Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. He was a guest of Hugh Hewitt. How do you react to President Trump's blowout win last night in Iowa? Well, Hugh, congratulations to President Trump for a decisive, historic victory. As you know, I support the president. I endorsed him a few weeks ago. Um, I think it's going to be a clear contrast between Two defined records. This is going to be an unusual presidential race in which you don't have one candidate making promises about what they would do or what they might do or what they will do. You simply have to compare the track records. Under President Trump, we had low inflation, we had a strong economy, rising working class wages, our border was secure, and we were respected and feared in the world. Under Joe Biden, everything's gone to hell. And I think most Americans, when it comes time to cast a vote in November, are going to vote for what they know will happen under President Trump because it's what they had for four years before Joe Biden came along and started ruining everything. Uh, Senator Cotton, Nikki Haley and Governor DeSantis are carrying on. Do you think they have a path? Well, you after last night's decisive and historic victory, it's frankly hard to see it. Um, I mean, they ran a strong race. Uh, as President Trump said, he congratulated them last night on strong races. Um, you know, the people in New Hampshire are going to have their say, but I've been in New Hampshire a lot. You and I have to tell you, Donald Trump is very strong in New Hampshire as well. And from that point, it only gets stronger for President Trump when he comes to my neck of the woods, South Carolina first, and then the rest, or much of the South, on the Super Tuesday state. So uh, I think after last night's decisive victory, the writing is on the wall here, and we're ready to uh, take on Joe Biden as a unified Republican Party. No, I hate to do this to you, but I want to play for you a little bit of Rachel Maddow because it is emblematic of the meltdown <laughs> on the left. Last night on MSNBC, cut number four. 
The, the, again, the big picture takeaway from that, and I don't mean to be, again, too dark, as you said, on this, but it is not... If we are worried about the rise of authoritarianism... Stop right there. Senator Cotton, every time I hear a left-winger, I mean a hard left-winger like Rachel, bring up authoritarianism or dictatorship, I wrote about this in Fox News this weekend, they have no faith in the Constitution. They They are inventing a bogeyman. What do you make of such incredibly incendiary and actually kind of stupid remarks? Well, Hugh, first off, I just want to say, inflicting upon me the first eight seconds of Rachel Maddow that I've ever listened to may end our long relationship with this radio program. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, second, let, let's think about what Rachel Maddow and Joe Biden and all these Democrats and lefties in the media might mean when they talk about the rise of authoritarianism or dictatorship. Could it be, I don't know, trying to imprison your chief political opponent? Could it be using the Department of Justice to prosecute and really persecute ideological opponents like Christians praying outside abortion clinics? Maybe using the Department of Justice to protect your own family cronies from uh, due process of law. Uh, maybe it's ignoring courts to reward your political uh, coalition. Is that what they mean Donald Trump's going to do? Oh, No, wait, that's exactly what Joe Biden has been doing for the last three years. So as always, these crazed left-wingers who are making these fantastical allegations about Donald Trump are really projecting, as the psychologists say. They are accusing Donald Trump of things that they have already been doing. We're going to stay with the coverage we saw from elite media of Trump and his victory in the Iowa caucus for a bit. Because, given that it's January and we have 10 months of this to go... We do well to steal ourselves with what to expect from elite legacy media outlets. We'll be seeing a lot more of it. We'll turn now to Larry O'Connor and his new podcast with townhall.com. Let's finish up with some conversation about the media because boy, oh boy, did they lose their minds last night. Matt Vespa has the write up over at Town Hall, uh, and he says it perfectly. The MSNBC hosts completely imploded. Trump's win caused the panel on MSNBC to implode, especially Rachel Maddow, who took an academic approach to how this win symbolizes the United States push towards authoritarianism. That's right. And he's not even overstating the case. The big picture takeaway from that, and I don't mean to be, again, too dark, as you said, on this, but it is not... If we are worried about the rise of authoritarianism in this country, we are worried about potential rise of fascism in this country. If we're worried about our democracy falling to an authoritarian and potentially fascist form of government, the leader who is trying to do that is part of that equation. Mm-hmm. But people wanting that Correct. is a much mm-hmm. bigger part mm-hmm. of that That's equation. Right. And the American electorate is made up of two major parties. One of those parties has been flirting with extremism on the ultra-right, for a very long time, they've brought them in in a way that they haven't been central to Republican electoral politics ever before. And I know because I've been studying this. But once you have radicalized one major party so that those are the preferences of the people who adhere to your party, the leaders interchangeable. And yes, Trumpism is sometimes what we call it. Mm-hmm. MAGA movement is probably a better way to do it. But there is an authoritarian mm-hmm. movement inside yes. Republican politics that isn't being bamboozled by Trump. Mm-hmm. They are pushing Trump yeah. to get more and more right. extreme because the more extreme things he says, 
the more they, the like more it. they adhere and to it. Yeah. And, and that is coming from a very large proportion of the American right that adheres to the Republican Party. And that's why this is a Republican Party problem more than it is the problem mm-hmm. of one man and his and we, and we- I might surprise you right now, but I actually want to applaud Rachel Maddow for a moment because she is the only one who is actually saying it saying what they really mean when they warn against Donald Trump. See, Joe and Mika, they play cutesy with this stuff. And George Stephanopoulos and Jonathan Carl and Jake Tapper, they play cutesy. Trump is a threat to our country. Trump will destroy our Constitution if he gets into the White House. Trump will end elections as we know it. Going, right? This is all the stuff they've been saying. And what have I told you when we talk about it? When we play the video, they're not afraid of Trump. They're afraid of you. Because Trump only gets into the White House if you vote for him. Trump only regains the power of the executive branch of our government if you vote for him. They're not really afraid of Trump. They're afraid of you refusing to vote the way they want you to vote. I need to say that again. Because Rachel Maddow is the first one to actually say it. Because they're all wussies. They don't want to say it. The only way Trump gets into the White House, the only way Trump gets the powers of the executive branch of government is if you vote for him. They're not afraid of Trump. They're afraid of you voting in the way that they don't want you to vote. In fact, they demand you vote another way. They expect you to vote another way. It goes all the way back to 2016 when they knew you wouldn't do this. They knew you wouldn't vote for Trump, right? Go look at all the great videos. Of them, there's no way Trump will be president. There's no chance that he'll be president. He's not going to be president. And then what happened? Because that's just how pissed off you were. And you still are, by the way. And Rachel Maddow at least said it. This isn't about Trump. It's about you. And by the way, the only way Trump wins is if there are more of you than there are of them. That's how elections work. And they're terrified of the majority of the people in this country who dare to actually think that Rachel Maddow and Joy Reid and Larry O'Donnell and all the other people on that panel have really terrible ideas. Next week on Tuesday, the primary contest turns to New Hampshire. We'll catch up on that next week. Before we move past the 2024 GOP primaries today, pollster Scott Rasmussen gives us analysis on what we learned from Iowa. Rasmussen was a guest of John Solomon on his podcast. It was cold. It was certainly cold for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis falling 30, 31, 32 points behind Trump. Do you see any pathway for them to secure the nomination or is this really steaming towards a Trump Trump? Yeah, the the race is over, you know, barring something cataclysmic health wise or something that we can't imagine. The the results, not only was it that uh, the former president topped 50 percent, there was no clear second place. You know, if it had been uh, Trump 40, DeSantis 30, Haley 20, well, then I could say maybe something's going on here. But there was there's no clear second choice. And a majority for the former president is huge. Uh, Looking back, it's on the question of what might those campaigns have been thinking. The reality is Trump was perceived as an incumbent. You know, this this wasn't an open race. And, and that just enabled him to, to steamroll over everybody.
There's some fascinating data in the uh, polling of those who showed up. The number one issue for them was the border. A lot of people always think in the economy is the big issue. But why would Iowa have such a concern about the border? I guess it really is a sign of how, how people feel insecure with the way the border is right now. Oh, border security is a huge issue among voters everywhere. It's not always number one. In fact, the economy is most always on top of the list. But for Republicans nationwide, it's a big issue. And it's tied in people's minds to a couple of other things. Obviously, the drug crisis, the the fentanyl crisis that we have, but also perceptions of national security. We think of national security as what happens overseas and foreign policy matters. But truthfully, it's right here at home. So that's where it was with these voters. And I think there's also a frustration that the elite politicians uh, just aren't treating this seriously. You know, John, I've I've done some research um, on a group that we're calling the elite 1%. This is an academic elite, people who are uh, influential in guiding the political narrative. And we surveyed 1,000 of uh, members of that elite And we asked them an open end, what's the most important issue in America? Not a single one of them mentioned immigration or border security. So voter frustration on this is not just the issue, it's that they're being stonewalled. Yeah. You can get John Solomon reports at the Salem Podcast Network. Coming up, the Biden administration hits back at the Houthis. Guess what? The White House called up the Houthis and said, we're going to bomb you, and this is where we're going to bomb you before the attack happens. In the next segment of Town Hall Review. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Seth Leibson in this week for Hugh. The Biden administration moved this week to put the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels back on our list of terrorist groups, a list they were on before, I should highlight, under the Trump administration. The administration also carried out new strikes against the Islamist terror group this week. For a closer look, we'll turn to Brandon Weikert, author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon was a guest on my program. The Iran-backed Houthis uh, struck a cargo ship in the Gulf of Aden. Um, Two Navy SEALs look to be uh, missing, God forbid, dead, having tried to board an illegally armed ship of Iran. (sighs) Brandon! Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Well, to evoke Rumsfeld, it's war, chaos, violence, unrest, any penny, the sky is falling. Yeah. And there's Joe Biden asleep at the switch. And uh, do they yet know who the secretary of defense is? I can't remember. I can't keep up anymore. Um, it's, this, is, um, this is what happens when you have a brain-dead president. Uh, we've moved from incompetence to just straight-up brain-dead and it's going to get worse from here. We're looking at now what we see the Houthis. By the way, we were told that the Houthis moved like 74 percent of their equipment that was targeted in those strikes that Biden authorized, supposedly authorized, uh, last week. They moved it out of the way before the bombs ever fell because guess what? The White House called up the Houthis and said, we're going to bomb you and this is where we're going to bomb you before the attack happened. 
So the Houthis have been completely rendered combat effective, even though we're dropping bombs. And we look like we're incompetent to the rest of the region. And now you add on the story of two Navy SEALs who have fallen into the drink. Um, you know, th- th- this we do not look good to the rest of the region. We look very incompetent. What's interesting to me about this story, and I'm just asking my audience to keep their eyes on it. I don't know anything they don't. You probably know more than I do on this. But I, I, I caught just a little one news source I'd never heard of reporting on it first thing this morning. And the reason I found it was I, it's been conversation amongst the SEAL community, as you can imagine. They would know first almost. And so I was looking around. There was one story on it, not much. And then there was a whole bunch of them like three hours later. And evidently Kirby said something vague about it. There's just something about two dead SEALs, Navy SEALs. Yeah. Iran, it's I'm just watch it. I'm telling people keep their eyeballs on this. This could be a small thing that could become a big thing. It could be. I don't know. It could could be. be. It could be. Um, I, I would just um, let your audience know that um, the Biden administration is not committed to restraining Iran. Right. Uh, Brett McGurk is the National Security Council's lead guy for the Middle East. Um, he sort of went ahead of his skis and announced a proposal for a peace plan that would have included Saudi Arabia recognizing Israel in exchange for the U.S. helping to basically rehabilitate the destroyed Gaza Strip. Now, I have problems with that plan because of the latter part of it, but um, I don't believe that the Biden administration is going to sign on to anything that sees Saudi Arabia moving closer to Israel because the Biden administration is preternaturally incapable of standing with our traditional allies in the region, as you and I have spoken about for years on this show. Um, And Biden is very committed to appearing to be hitting Iran and its proxies without actually having any effect. He wants to put on a show like Clinton used to do with al-Qaeda in the 90s, and then hopefully in his mind, or whatever's left of his mind, get the Iranians and their uh, proxies to sit down at a table and negotiate with him. But, of course, he'd be negotiating from a position of weakness. Um, And so this Navy SEAL thing, um, we look incompetent and weak in a region where if you look either one of those things, let alone both of them, you will never get a deal out of any of those groups because they are not capable of dealing with somebody when they think they're weak and or incompetent, as we appear to be. So I would anticipate greater hostility, not less. And we've done everything we can to send, at best, a mixed signal and really, in more reality, a strengthening shot of B-12 to them. We delisted them by we, I mean Joe Biden, delisted yep. the Houthis as a terrorist organization. He has okayed and approved of the funding of Iran, billions of dollars, yep. and the relaxation of certain sanctions, with a beg at the same time to return to the negotiating table. He is making us look weak to their strength. And the funny thing is, if you go through the history of how we interact with Iran from the Vincennes forward, it seems to me when we are strong, they really do go quiet. It's when we're weak that they go loud. Yes. 
Yes, and that's what the Iranians need to be careful about because they they tried this garbage in 2018 and 19 under Trump, and Trump clipped their wings right. very fast, right. which of course eventuated with the beautiful assassination of that dog, Kasim Soleimani. Yep. Um, and so, what I would warn those in the region who are pro-Iran. The Houthis need to watch out because they keep doing this. It's in an election year, and if we have an above-board election, Trump's probably going to win. And if Trump wins, that means Iran's wings are getting clipped very quickly by the new president. And so their actions actually in the long run, Iran's, might end up creating the nightmare for them that they've been trying to avoid, which is Joe Biden's removed and Donald Trump comes back and look out. Boy, it's 1979 all over again, you know, all over again. Iran acts against America. America puts in someone who can take them down. What does it look like to take this war seriously? In 1979, 1980, it took little more than the inauguration of Ronald Reagan. It took little more than that with Iran. And I'm wondering if the inauguration of Donald Trump speaks the same stick. Well, if we can have a free and fair election in 2024, I think that because the Iranian regime does not want to fight us in a head on fight. They want to do unconventional methods. They want to sap us over the long term and they want to hit us with terrorism. And so if we can get the right president in who has, in Trump's case, a track record of containing Iran without ever actually going to war with Iran, then I think the Iranians will back down. Um, The threat won't go away, but they will be contained. And I think the same is true with North Korea, by the way. But with Biden, he does not know how to handle this threat, and he's encouraging the worst behavior. So we will be at a regional war that could become a world war, I think, if Biden gets reelected. And so I think, yeah, a new president would probably cut this thing in half, you know, or at least take out 80 percent of the threat in the near term. The problem really, though, is how do we get the Saudis to lead the Sunni Arab states back into the waiting arms of the Israelis? And how do we get those two groups to start really coordinating in an almost Mideast NATO to contain Iran the way that we created NATO in the 1950s to contain the Soviet Union. Because if you can contain Iran, and then you can apply maximum pressure economically and diplomatically, while the Israelis and the Saudis apply military pressure, you can basically, I think, create a situation within Iran where the people there can finally have the abilities that they need to overthrow their government. And that's basically what happened in the Soviet Union after 70 years of containment and deterrence. We need something similar today with Iran at a regional level. And we don't have a president right now who views it that way. He wants to do a deal with Iran and basically do to Iran what we did with China in the 1970s. And we know how terribly that policy has played out. It's made the Chinese stronger. And so we should not be trying to integrate Iran into the global trading network and treating them like they were a normal country. Because as long as the Islamists run it, they will never be a normal country. Coming up, an admission of sorts of a wrong-headed approach to COVID. At the end of the day, what they what they didn't say was, I'm sorry I made a mistake. Uh, I'm sorry I, w- I misled a lot of the public. When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment, stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. 
Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Last week, we got a late admission of sorts from Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins on failures during the COVID era, or at least the damage done during the COVID pandemic, closure of schools, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and the chilling of speech from the government on so much of this. It was pretty apparent for us normal folk a long time ago. Dr. Jeffrey Barkey is one of the early critics who paid a price for criticizing the medical establishment. He was a guest of Dennis Prager's. So did you happen to catch the statements by a number of uh, physicians that they made big mistakes during COVID? I did. I've been following it. So you know about Francis Collins, for example? Yes. So just for the listeners being brought up to speed, what did they say, or should should I look it, it up? Yeah, I mean, if you have it, I don't, I, I can't quote them. But at the end of the day, what they what they didn't say was, I'm sorry I made a mistake. Uh, I'm sorry I, w- I misled a lot of the public. But what they basically said is we look through the lens of what we think is best for health. We don't look through the lens of what our policies That's and recommendations right. That's exactly what Francis Collins said. are going to do to affect society. Right. And n- nonetheless, that their policies were wrong, absolutely, completely wrong, and there will be no accountability, unfortunately. They ruin the lives of many people, including a lot of our children. And our children continue to suffer today from the policies of these bureaucrats that live in their ivory tower. And there won't be any accountability, unfortunately. We close the schools incorrectly based on fraudulent science. We were, here, here's what we were told, Dennis. We were said, listen, kids can carry this virus without any symptoms and can spread this virus, COVID, of course, we're talking about, to other children, infect teachers, then everybody goes home and kills grandma and grandpa. Therefore, we need to close the schools and keep everybody home. Well, that's never been the case. You can't spread an illness that you don't actually have. You can't give somebody a cold if you don't have a cold yourself. Not, not to mention that we knew early on kids, and thank God for this, Kids were not affected by COVID. If they got COVID, it was a mild cold symptom. You can look it up and don't believe me. Look at the CDC's own data. Google CDC deaths by age from COVID. 
and you'll see that there were very few deaths of kids less than 18 years old from COVID. And almost every single one of those deaths were in kids that had significant underlying comorbidities. What I mean by that is they had cancer, they had childhood congenital defects, they had severe rigid diabetes and other problems that put them at risk. But kids that were otherwise healthy were at almost no risk from COVID, yet we treated them as if we were going to kill a generation full of children. And we knew this early on, but yet we followed these policies, you know, in part because of ignorance, in part because of fear, in part because the media was going out of their way, posting death counts uh, on the shows that they would broadcast and, and fearing the public into compliance. But whether it's Anthony Fauci or Collins or others, there's no accountability, there's no apology, and in my opinion, it's a crime, and all these folks should be prosecuted for what they did. So I looked up rates of COVID-19 cases or deaths by age group and vaccination status. Who cares about cases? We don't, we don't care. Last time I looked it up, and it's been a while, it was something like, I don't know, 1,500 or, or just several thousand children less than 18 that died from COVID, and then you have to really be a sleuth to drill down and look actually why those kids died. And every single one of them had some sort of underlying significant comorbidity. So it just, it doesn't affect kids. We knew, and Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kulldorff and others from the Great Barrington Declaration, they knew that this was a risk for people that were older or that had significant underlying conditions. Okay, it is amazing that the errors that cost so many lives and, and have ruined the futures of millions of American children, and yet Americans don't put two and two together. Maybe there's something wrong with the medical profession. Oh, there's something very wrong with the medical profession. It's embarrassing now what goes on in the medical profession, and in particular in medical training these days. We're all familiar that college education is a disaster. And with some rare exceptions, it's woke indoctrination institutions. And now we've seen it even in K through 12. Uh, but now it's apparent that it's also the case that the woke nature, the woke movement has infected, I think that's an accurate word, uh, infected medical schools, it's infected law schools, and I don't know how we recover from it. Coming up, I believe that God created us pretty perfectly. He didn't make a mistake. And if we learn how to take care of our bodies, we have enormous healing potential, far more powerful than the pharma industry wants us to believe. More with Dr. Jeffrey Barkey when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Seth Liebson. If there is something positive that has come out of the government's wrong-headed, heavy-handed, and ineffectual approach to the COVID-19 pandemic, 
it is at least this. It has gotten a lot of people thinking, what do I want from my doctor? What should I expect from my doctor? And would I do well to take a more proactive role in my own health and healthcare? Let's return to Dr. Jeffrey Barkey with Dennis Prager. Barkey's new book, by the way, is Morning Message, Dispelling the Myths You've Been Told About Optimal Health. The number of medical schools that now do not say pregnant women, they say birthing persons. Are you familiar with that? It's disgusting. Yeah, it's absolutely disgusting. Where, where did you go to medical school? Uh, I went to the University of California, Irvine, UC Irvine, which is in Orange, California. And do you know if they're saying birthing persons? I don't know about that particular word, but the kids there are learning about uh, transgender. Um, they're learning about DEI. Um, many of their, Are they learning medicine? Um, yeah, I guess they're learning medicine also, but they're learning the disease model of medicine, Dennis. What's that? It means there isn't a condition or a disease or, or a symptom that you have that we don't have a pharma cure for it. And why is that mindset there? Well, it's there in part because of profits and because of the insidious relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and government. You know, the CDC and the FDA used to be funded entirely by taxpayer dollars, as it should be. And they're supposed to have the backs of the American people, in particular the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. But now about 50% of the budget of the FDA comes from the industries that they are overseeing, and it shouldn't be that way. So I'm sure there's good individuals that work there, but the institution as a whole... What, is it, what does that mean? It, it's funded by th uh, institutions that they oversee, for example. Um, for example, when a drug company wants to get a product approved, they pay the FDA a user fee in order for the FDA to review whatever product it is that they want to bring to market. And as a result, the user fees have increased, and the budget that they use at the FDA comes so 50%. So Pfizer helps fund the CDC? Correct. How many Americans know that? Uh, probably not many. I'm trying to think of an analogy because the absurdity of it is so obvious. Here's the analogy. Yeah. Imagine that the EPA, Environmental yeah, Protection right. Agency, was funded by ExxonMobil. Right. Would we, would well, we trust well, what it, they say? Well, imagine what the New York Times, how ballistic it would go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, l listen, these organizations can be saved. Uh, we talked a little bit about Bobby Kennedy Jr., who's, of course, running for president. His idea is to defund these organizations, return them back to being funded only by taxpayer dollars, and maybe equally important, have these agencies be overseen by elected people, not by the administrative state. So right now they're overseen by bureaucrats that are not accountable to the voters, and they should be overseen only by people that are elected by the voters, so there's some accountability, and they're not right now. And so back to your, your question about uh, conditions and drugs and, and the American people are told on TV when you watch football games or baseball games. I was watching playoffs yesterday. There's ad after ad after ad by some pharma company telling you that if you have this rash or that rash, that there's a drug that will make it better. I believe that God created us pretty perfectly. He didn't make a mistake. And if we learn how to take care of our bodies, 
we have enormous healing potential, far more powerful than the pharma industry wants us to believe. The problem is nobody is teaching us how to take care of our body. So for example, one of the pages in the book is the great eight, eight things that you can do that are free that could dramatically improve your health. Number one, morning sunshine. Unfortunately, we're told that the sun is bad for us. The opposite is true. The sun is so healthy for us. Our skin is solar panels for our body. We need to get out in the sun more without sunscreen, by the way. So morning for sunshine. How long? Ideally, 15, 20 minutes a day. Morning. Right, that's important that people know that. You're not saying sunbathe. No, I don't want anybody to get burnt. Of course not. But graduated exposure to the sun is so healthy for and, us. And so why start the day with it? Because is, morning, is that, su- morning is that important? Su- yes, morning sun is particularly good because of the light waves, the UV that is present in the morning. It helps. If you want to sleep better, expose yourself to morning sun. So you have a list of eight things in your book. Is that one day's message or is it eight days messages? No, it was one day's. It was a post um, that I put on social media uh, that was meaningful to me and most importantly, I'm always being asked, you know, what do I do to stay healthy? And isn't it expensive to do some of these things? And the answer is no, it's not. You, it, for free, you can do a few things that will dramatically impact your health. And sunshine. All right, so the first is sunshine. Morning sunshine. And, and, and again, I want to repeat for people, you, 20 minutes is fine. You're, you're, you don't, it doesn't have to be out there a long time. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll just read them and then we can talk okay, about each fine. one individually. Okay, Morning sunshine, number two, breath work, number three, meditation, number four, exercise, number five, cold water, number six, grounding, number seven, hugs, number eight, gratitude, and then there's a bonus, number nine, and that is pet a purring cat. (laughs) Unless you're allergic. (laughs) Unless you're allergic. Uh, Sean is offended he has a dog. Oh, sorry, Sean. I Listen, I love all animals, including dogs. Um, I know you lost a beloved dog recently, Otto. I've, as a matter of fact, I've got a selfie with Otto. And, you do? Um, I do. That yeah. is rare. I know. That, that's yeah. a collector's item. Uh, but I do have two cats. Dogs are just more difficult. They take a lot more time. No and kidding. And so forth. That's correct. They are more affectionate, though. All right. So, all right. After sunshine, what was number two? Number two is breath work. Okay. What does that mean? Well, there are techniques of breathing that can be very therapeutic and helpful. There's a guy that I follow. He's kind of got a funny name. He's from Holland. His name is Wim Hof. W-I-M, last name Hof, H-O-F-F. Look it up. Um, And then there are a variety of ways to practice breathing. It's, in effect, a form of meditation, if you will. And if you did nothing but that, it can have a profound effect on your health, help calm you down, reduce cortisol, uh, reduce your fight or flight reaction, stimulate your immune system, reduce inflammation and so forth. Coming up. So I try to focus on the gratitude, not on all the drama that we all have in our life. And it's really easy to get caught up on. A few more minutes with Dr. Jeffrey Barkey in the final segment of the Town Hall Review. Stay with us. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, 
keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Barkey. It caught my attention earlier this week. It's important stuff. He's pushing us to think proactively about how we can become a bit more like the person we aspire to be each and every day. High on his list is something my own listeners have heard from me on a regular basis, a daily discipline of gratitude, exercise, and health care that involves thinking about, praying for, and talking with other people. You can't isolate. Let's catch up with Dr. Jeffrey Barkey, author of Morning Message with Dennis Prager. Listen, Dennis, people should know I'm as flawed and broken and imperfect as anybody else out there. I'm always working on myself, and with God's grace and help, I try to be the best person I can. Uh, But I'm realizing that with all the drama and difficulties that we all have in our life, that being grateful for what we do have, even when we're suffering, is so important to ultimately being happy. You know, it's Martin Luther King Day, and I listened to a Martin Luther King speech, and he said something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, um, if you want to be rich, go for it. You know, good for you. If you want to be famous, go do that. But if you really want to have a meaningful life, then learn how to serve others. And you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be anything to serve others. So focus on serving others. And I've tried to incorporate that. And I try to look for opportunities to serve. This book, in part, is my effort to do that. I try to be grateful for little things and big things when I can. I try to write down a few things that I'm grateful for every single day. I'm so grateful for my kids that love me, Ali and Sam, and all the help that they've provided for me. So I try to focus on the gratitude, not on all the drama that we all have in our life and it's really easy to get caught up on. So what does it do for you health-wise? That's, that's why it's on your list. It is, and gratitude and service is so important. There's a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, and I'm paraphrasing, but something like, there's a unique disposition in life that when you help others, you can't but help be helped yourself. So by helping others, by being grateful, it helps you. Can we measure it? I don't know, but I think we probably could if we were good enough, whether it's improved immunity, reducing inflammation, Uh, Mental health is so critical. There's an expression that a mentor of mine who's become a friend, his name is Dr. Jack Wolfson. He's a cardiologist, and he has an expression that I've incorporated for my own with his permission, and that's eat well, live well, think well. Eat well is obvious. Live well has to do with detoxifying our life. But think well may arguably be the most important, and that is learning how to control how we think learning how to meditate, how to be peaceful inside, having a strong relationship with God or whoever your higher power is. And I think that is arguably more important than the other two. You could eat perfectly, but if you're under chronic stress and dread and focusing on the glass being half empty rather than half full, I think that adversely affects your health as well. Thanks for joining us for the Town Hall Review. If you've benefited from what we're doing, would you do me a favor? Mention us to a friend. Send them to townhallreview.com to sign up for our podcast. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Alec Perez, David Pouchon, and my own partner here in Phoenix, David Dahl. 
Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Seth Liebson, thanking you for joining us for Town Hall Review. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 